Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 14 I spent hours driving aimlessly, waiting for updates from Alice and word that her contact had been able to obtain the mem chips we needed. The car was a newer electric, a small model that had been built in Vietnam by a PRC state-run facility, so I didn't have to worry about gas. The large battery under the hood could go 300 miles on a single charge and had a backup 12-gallon gas tank, which was half full. I wasn't planning on driving forever, and the clock was rolling past lunchtime. I was hungry, and I needed to get out to stretch my legs and get some fresh air. Walking around the city for a bit had its own set of complications. I could get stopped by roving military police, and although I didn't think that possibility posed much threat to my personal safety, arguing across a language barrier the size of the Pacific Ocean would be a long, drawn-out hassle. They would want to know who I was, why I was here, and why I had left my refugee camp. When they discovered I was from Echo Park, that would further complicate matters, and I would have to explain my displacement and face more uncomfortable questions. I weighed my options. I'd been making a circuitous route between Figueroa and Hill, avoiding the random checkpoints along the way. I pulled into a parking garage near the Fig and took the stairs down from the third floor. Pedestrian traffic was light, but dressed in a button-down shirt and black slacks on a weekday, I blended in well enough with the crowd. I paid attention to the people around me, occasionally taking a casual glance around. Nobody seemed particularly interested in me, and I was confident no one was following me. I walked to what had once been the Staples Center and went through the entrance of Figueroa. Before the war, I had seen King's Games here, and Celine and I had brought Mesa to see a Disney on Ice show when she was five. The crowd was thicker that day than it had been during the center's entertainment heydays. A throng of bodies stood shoulder to shoulder, damn near chest to back, inching their way forward. I got in line and waited patiently to pass through the checkpoint. UN soldiers positioned on either side of the line at regular intervals randomly asked people for IDs. They largely avoided asking for IDs from those of a clearly Asian background focusing their attention instead on easier, more politically correct subjects, such as small children and the elderly. I provided my ident when asked. The soldier said nothing, so I said nothing. He pressed my card against a small device, his head bobbed repeatedly between the monitor and me, then he handed back the card and moved on. My trip to the checkpoint took nearly half an hour. I was instructed to remove my shoes and socks and to raise my arms over my head as I was corralled through a body scanner, then wanded and patted down before being directed to stand in another line for almost another half hour. The security procedures were artificial precautions, a well-orchestrated show to give the illusion of safety. Nano-secure clouds webbed the entrances, alerting security to potential threats before the individuals were even past the main entrance hubs giving the guards a chance to neutralize most threats before they ever made it into the central lobby. I was asked to present my ident again. I kept it at the ready in one hand, holding my socks and shoes in the other. 
Eventually, I made my way up to another guard station, where I was met with a bored, blonde-haired, blue-eyed man barely out of his teens. He scanned my ident card for a fourth time. Purpose of visit? He asked with a heavy accent. Dutch or maybe Swedish. I want to talk about political asylum for myself and my daughter. I was hoping to get some food, too. Where is your daughter? She's staying with some friends. She's not with you now? No, I said, slightly annoyed. Do you have an appointment? No, I said again. Don't you take walk-ins? We do. It may be uh, a long wait. Lots of people, you see. Yeah, I see. It says you are assigned to Echo Park, he said, gesturing toward the computer. That's right, I said. You must have heard about the attack. He nodded, and I could see sympathy crack through the old business facade he'd been nurturing. You're seeking asylum to where? Seattle, or the Seasteaders, wherever. Hold out the hand? I did. He pressed a heavy rubber stamp against it, leaving a large purple blot of ink. Okay, my friend, you proceed. Amnesty and asylum representatives are in the central court. Long line today. When I was past the guard's kiosk, the line loosened considerably as people moved off in different directions. I found a bench and put my footwear back on, then found a food vendor. Massive liquid crystal displays hung over the center of the promenade, where paper-thin screens broadcasted satellite news feeds from the PRC, CBC, BBC, and Al Jazeera. It took the CBC's mindless talking heads 15 minutes to get through the local weather, the latest leaked celebrity sex tapes, and an update on an ailing musician's battle with the common cold before they got to the assault on Echo Park. They turned the piece over to a live on-scene reporter who talked solemnly while casually strolling through the scene of burnt tents and PRC soldiers dressed in white Tyvek suits and rubber gloves, hauling out the dead soldiers and refugees. His narration continued over the B-roll footage of the camp in its prime, of our weathered but intact tents and weary refugees standing in long lines to get fresh water and food. I wasn't surprised by the damage. I'd seen enough similar sights. During the live footage, I studied the background as best as I could, looking for people I might have known. The carnage made it impossible to tell, though. The background was fuzzy and indistinct, while the reporter and his immediate surroundings were sharp and clear but devoid of any real information. The broadcast was as close to an on-air media blackout as you could get. When his report concluded, the correspondent sent the program back to the studio, where a panel of so-called experts continued to hash it out. Two male liberals and two conservative women comprised the panel. They all tried to speak at the same time, their conversation escalating into a shouting match and were at each other's throats in the span of three words, trying to drown each other in righteous fury and indignation. I wondered what the point of the segment was, then figured the talking heads were getting bent out of shape simply to vent, create drama, and feel really good about themselves while they basked in their on-air spotlight. I found it curious that they had labeled this an American story and used figureheads from the liberal and conservative movements, ideologies that, even prior to the country's death, had long since ceased to truly represent the views of the American people. After Al-Qaeda launched a series of attacks in the Midwest and the PRC began their loud saber-rattling in the Pacific, U.S. officials began heightening security. Heightened security became a euphemism for excuse to strip you of your rights. Afraid to challenge the politicians out of fear over lost interviews and exclusive info, the press corps turned a blind eye. The dissolution of civil liberties progressed slowly, mounted over successive periods of hysteria. 
We stopped wearing belts to the airports, disposed of bottled liquids, and took off our shoes while government officials used virtual strip search secure clouds to take nude pictures of us, all so that we could assure them we were not a threat. Nobody would admit that these precautions had done nothing to prevent the following waves of terror attacks, which had been completely unrelated to airport security, in other major cities across the country. But we submitted and were primed to submit again. National Guard checkpoints on our nation's highways became another minor inconvenience. A necessary evil, we were told, like having our comnets tapped and emails read. We submitted willingly to America the police state in exchange for the empty promise of security. Then the PRC struck. The media, in the days and weeks that followed, speculated on the death of democracy, ignoring the fact that democracy had already been long forgotten. Dirty bombs and poison gas attacks in the nation's capital, New York and Philadelphia had seen to that. When people in Boston and Chicago reported to emergency rooms with mysterious illnesses and doctors found injection wounds on their backs or arms, a new wave of panic gripped the country. Terrorists had wandered American city streets, stabbing people with hypodermic needles filled with a cocktail of hardy, drug-resistant bacteria. Scores of the infected died, while others grew so sick that they needed organ transplants and amputations. The terrorists' escalation to germ warfare generated such widespread fear that hardly anybody disagreed with the president's order for the military to occupy city streets in order to help local police maintain safety and alertness. I wondered which America Kafton was fighting for. Which ideology was he hoping to resurrect? The military police states the major metropolitan cities had become? Or an earlier, more idealized version of America that he knew from historical downloads? When he was drafted, had they even bothered telling him about the Constitution? Or had it been completely wiped from memory by then? I thought about Mesa and wondered if the Northern Alliance was really any better. Would I be trading one dictatorship for another, forcing her under the thumb of some other demagogue run by the corporate machine and the military-industrial complex? Or would it be something similar to the life we used to know, where we could safely walk the streets or go to a movie theater without first passing through an hour-long security checkpoint to establish our safety? The burger and fries on the plate before me were cold. I'd eaten a small portion, mindlessly chewing without tasting any of it. The fries were limp and soggy and glued together into a thick, gelatinous bundle of grease. The burger wasn't even real meat, but some unnaturally bright pink artificial concoction jammed between day-old buns and hidden beneath relish, ketchup, and mustard. I doused it in sriracha to give it some heat and flavor. If I burned off my taste buds and didn't study what I was eating, the food was edible enough. I took my tray to the garbage kiosk and threw away the paper items, left the tray on a stack of similarly colored trays, and made my way through the promenade and seating area, down the stairs to the center court. I'd always wanted to be courtside, but not quite like this, not jammed up against a suffocating crowd and bureaucratic rubber stamps. A long row of tables with dividers between them gave the illusion of privacy, and each station had two chairs. UN office monkeys and alliance reps staffed the tables and did the interviews. Dressed in expensive suits, they had the air of self-entitled arrogance that marked them as government-sanctioned power whores who got off on playing with people's lives and enjoyed juggling fates in the palms of their hands. I was annoyed by everything right then. The hackneyed farce of tables and chairs, the crowd of human cattle I was stuck in the middle of, and the denigrating presumption that I should have to ask for permission to live my life. 
I was expected to petition for it in order to afford my daughter's safety in a part of the continent that had not been torn apart by warfare, power-hungry invaders, and infighting among the survivors. These Alliance reps, with their crisp haircuts and shiny shoes, were the same as the UN and the rest of the world. They had watched America crumble and burn, and had done nothing. They'd sat by, unconcerned and uncaring. Even at the height of their occupation, nobody asked the PRC to leave. There was no timetable for withdrawal. Nobody condemned them. They were given a handful of economic sanctions and trade restrictions, but even that was another farce. The world's politicians were weak, and their silence made them willing participants in the destruction of the United States. They wanted to avoid war because it would be bad in the polls, and their country's citizens were weary of long, overdrawn battles that would claim thousands of their countrymen. War was almost as unpopular as America, and the weights didn't balance, so a democracy was allowed to die, and an entire nation's worth of people were deemed politically expendable. The UN was trying to place us as best as they could. States throughout the alliance had a refugee quota, as did UN member countries in Europe, but asylum candidates were rarely sent overseas. Mesa had wanted to go to Seattle through the underground railroad the refugee emigrants had established. We could sneak away through Nevada and find help with a host of sympathizers, then apply directly for asylum in Washington. The governor had opened the state's borders in a politically unpopular decision that would probably cost him the next election. He had said he would always be American, first and foremost, and he considered it his duty to help other Americans, no matter how they found themselves in his state. The people around me talked about rejection rates, how many times they'd applied before, the whys and hows of their prior rejections, and their hopes that this time would be different. My annoyance turned into full-on pissed off. The line moved forward a smidge. Then a message from Alice popped up on the private com frequency. I listened to it, dividing my attention between her words and the chatter around me as I shuffled forward with the rest of the cattle. Her contact had reached out to let her know we were good for a meet. At the table ahead of me, a woman was crying into her partner's shoulder. The man in the suit tapped a brief message on the data pad and asked them to leave. She cried harder, and the suit asked them to leave again. No sympathy. No compassion. Not a fucking care about them. Fuck it. Fuck them. Fuck their new world order. I shoved my way through the throng, losing my place in line. It earned me some whispered contempt, and I could feel the stares on my back as I shoved my way back up the steps. A guard stopped me and asked if something was wrong. I told him I was feeling sick to my stomach, and it was more truth than lie. I went out the 11th Street entrance. The guards left me alone, probably thinking I was another dejected soul who had been ground up and sped out by the political machinery. I wandered the streets, taking an indirect route back to the parking garage on Figueroa, where I'd left the car. Inside the garage, I did a quick once around the floor and checked the other vehicles to see if anyone was waiting for me. Maybe another one of Jamie's hit squads, for instance. I listened to Alice's message again. Her contact wanted to meet in three hours at a sushi joint on 3rd Street. In prime conditions, the trip would take about a half hour on the Santa Monica Freeway. I was given a route to follow that would take me around the checkpoints, and I estimated it would take almost an hour to get to his location. Traffic was moderate, and the directions proved good. I had plenty of time to kill, so I parked some distance away from the restaurant on Swall, along a residential block of apartment buildings. The area was nice enough. 
The tall, tan buildings with stucco walls and balconies overlooking the street had gone largely untouched by the war. My car blended in with the other vehicles parked along Swall. I walked down third, in front of the single-story businesses that lined the street. Most of the multi-floor complexes, such as Cedars-Sinai and Bloomingdale's, had been crushed, but a lot of single-story businesses had reopened, mostly mom-and-pop shops and some restaurants. I passed a liquor store housed in a glass-fronted A-frame and a bar advertising happy hour and half-off sake. Then I turned down Holt, took Burton to Sherbourne, and went back up to third. Satisfied that I was alone, I took an outdoor table at a coffee shop where I could keep an eye on the sushi joint. I sipped a spiced latte and started to relax. The tension and anger I'd been carrying around with me began to bleed away, and I was grateful for the quiet, calm, and the open spaces around me. I let my guard down a bit, but remained mindful of the people around me. I kept track of those who walked by, then waited to see if they reappeared. A few other customers joined me on the patio, but I lingered over my drink longer than they did, and they left ahead of me. I was there for a while, but not longer than would be considered unusual. I leafed through a newspaper that had been left behind on another table and tried to be as inconspicuous as possible. The meeting was slated for 5.30, but traffic to and from the restaurant across the street had been minimal. Ten minutes ahead of the meeting time, a wiry Chinese man exited a car parked curbside and went inside. I watched for a few minutes, but nobody followed. I gave him another ten minutes, erring on the side of caution and deciding to be fashionably late, then paid my bill and left a decent tip for the waitress. I went to a table at the back of the restaurant, near the bathrooms and away from any windows, where I found the Chinese man picking at a plate of udon with chopsticks. Mr. Su, I said, taking the seat opposite him. He called for the waiter, fired off a rapid string of words in a language I did not understand, and poured me a small cup of hot tea. His arms were thin cords of muscle and vein, and his neck was long and slender. He wore a short sleeve button-down with a thick blue tie. His sport coat was draped over the back of another chair. His salt and pepper hair was short, and he had the distinct air of a cop. When he spoke to me, his English was impeccable and softer than his Chinese. You are a friend of Alice's, he said. I ordered you udon too. Thank you, I said. I appreciate your help on this. He shrugged, his head cast down toward the bowl, his eyes closed against the steam. He seemed small and defeated, and I wondered what Alice had held over his head to ensure his cooperation. Your police? A small smile crossed deftly over his lips, and he canted his head this way and that, as if to say, maybe yes, maybe no. I was, he said, before all this. He made a circle in the air over the table with his chopsticks, pointing at nothing but including everything. Now, it doesn't matter so much anymore what I am, I suppose. I am police, sure. You've got a hell of a lot of access to get what we needed for somebody so noncommittal. What would you have me say? It's a job. I work for them. I do work for her. It all pays. I thought about the nature of yin and yang and what the battle for balance can do to a man's soul. Perfect harmony never comes without an exacting toll and a heavy penance. He had the smell of a cop, but he stank of defeat. I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for myself, too. I shouldn't have left Staples. I should have stayed and at least tried to get amnesty for myself and Mesa. Instead, I'd gotten petty and angry, refusing to even try, and acted like a petulant child. 
By the time my noodles came, he was finished with his, so I ate quickly. He regarded me quietly, not saying a word. Obviously, he wasn't in the business of opening up to complete strangers, let alone bagmen for the crime lord he'd somehow gotten entangled with. When my bowl was empty, he passed me a folded napkin. I picked it up and dabbed at my lips, feeling the bodies of the memory chips through the thin cloth. I tucked my hands under the table and extracted the chips, then put the napkin back on the table. I'm guessing you viewed the data? He pursed his lips and tilted his head to one side. I am lead investigator of these murders, he said finally. I took that as a yes. Then you know this wasn't just some random killings. Do I? In some respects, depending on certain angles and one's point of view, you simply strolled out of an apartment building and shot one of the men point blank. And if you dig deeper, you know that these men were responsible for the freeway attack a few days ago. If you run the MEMS with the empath filters on, you know they were there to kill Alice. That's a whole hell of a lot of cognition you're sweeping under the rug. It's unimportant what I do or do not know. It is important, however, that my superiors trust in my competencies as an investigator and that they do not learn the truth. For all our sakes, I should say. In other words, you're sitting on all of this until Alice tells you otherwise. He inclined his head slightly, with barely any movement at all. He looked small inside of his suit, pathetic even. Our business finished, he pushed himself away from the table and stood. He put on a hat and a sport coat, cutting the profile of a dapper detective from a bygone century. I gave him a few minutes head start and drank a glass of water before leaving. I ran through another security check, looping around the neighborhood on an indirect path back to my car. With every step I took, I could feel the chips burning a hole in my pocket. With every second that passed, I could feel a growing uncertainty and the painful tug of time slipping away, wasted. I feared that the information on the chips was already past its expiration date. If Jamie's location was buried in there somewhere, it was completely possible he would have moved on already. Once he'd learned of the deaths, he could have rabbited and disappeared to a new spider hole that neither of the dead men's memories was privy to. He could have limited knowledge of the secret location to a party of one, and then he would be gone forever, and Mesa with him. I had to find him. The memory chips had to have the answers I needed. They had to. In the car, I took a deep, calming breath, trying to center myself. I took the dreamer unit out of the glove compartment, organized the chips on the dashboard, and plugged in. The chips passed the dreamer security program. No virals, no thought bombs, no mem wipes or trojans. I did a quick download, uninterested in the experience of their memories. I was strictly data hounding it, fast and easy. I dumped the mems and scrubbed them through custom filters and a facial recognition suite, hunting for Jamie-specific contexts. I didn't need to know anything about their personal lives or what they had felt at their moment of death. I cared only about Jamie and where he might be. I let the info wash over me. Finished, I unplugged, needing time to think. Jamie had options, and in some ways I was chasing a ghost. He was an information hound, a compartmentalization whore. He told people what he wanted them to know or needed them to believe. The chips were so rife with data, though, an odd disparity for someone who so tightly controlled the flow of information. That, in itself, was the trap. Addresses, phone numbers, safe houses, drop boxes, and multiple meeting points. 
parking garages and malls, university centers, restaurants, coffee houses, construction sites, warehouses, and run-down vacant movie theaters. These men were part of a cell that Jamie ran directly. His elite squad, his private army, his killers. A list of safe houses were embedded in the memories of both men, but I ruled those out because I figured Jamie would eliminate them as an option. He had to assume that his men had been bagged up by the PRC and that they would vet every memory and chase every lead. It seemed unlikely that he would know Alice had sicked her inside man, her pathetic detective, on the case and wormed her way into the investigation. All of his safe houses were exposed. His entire network was not simply compromised but burned entirely. He would have to go to the one place only he knew about. But where the fuck was that? Where had he taken my daughter? I stared out the grimy, pockmarked windshield. The city's dust had left a fine film of grit in half circles and triangles on the glass where the wipers couldn't reach. A tightness blossomed in my chest, heavy over my heart. The pressure of time manifested into physical pain, made worse by the loss of precious minutes and hard-fought seconds. I had to find Mesa, and I had no idea where to even begin looking. I couldn't face losing her. Celine's death had ruined me. If anything happened to Mesa... Then, just like that, a small thought that had been tugging at the back of my mind lurched forward and flourished. I studied this sudden realization carefully. I remembered my time on Alcatraz, where I had first met Jamie. We'd taken long walks around the compound and had equally long discussions. I remembered his story of loss, his dead wife, and the underground shelter that had come under attack. It was impossible for me to forget. Neither of the men had known that parcel of information about Jamie. He had not entrusted them with that detail of his life. But he had told me. He had recognized a kindred spirit. Our pain and loss made us close. In hindsight, it was easy to see that he was merely using the tools he had needed in order to recruit me, to draw me into his cause and his plans. But that little information whore had shared a piece of himself with me. If it were true. The metro rail consisted of five lines and nearly a hundred stations. The red and purple lines were nearly thirty miles of subway with more than twenty stops between them. Union Station had been used as a shelter, but so had Civic Center. Jamie had said the PRC had tossed grenades down on them, so the odds favored Civic. The subways were dead tunnels, home to the rats and the displaced who had made the underground their homes. The PRC was in no rush to get them operational and did not currently view the system as an essential part of the infrastructure. They were occupied with rebuilding the highways, establishing regular bus routes, and getting the surface and above-ground rails operational. In time, they promised the subways would run again, when they were safe. Subways were one more avenue for the terrorists to gain a foothold in their attacks and campaigns of violence. The PRC had enough problems above-ground without creating the potential for even more catastrophe below. When it is safe became a mantra during the infrequent press briefings they gave for the state news, but the city and its infrastructure wasn't going to be safe anytime soon. Fifteen, maybe twenty years down the line, Los Angeles could have its subways back, but only if any outlying resistance groups were completely crushed. Jamie could be hidden anywhere in the thirty miles of tunnel, plus all the offshoot corridors that were used for maintenance and storage. 
Add to that all of the other tunnels that ran above and below the subways that could have been drilled into for access, and finding him would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Hundreds of miles of drainage networks and sewers provided Jamie with a million potential hiding spots deep off the grid. I didn't know if he was a tunnel rat, but I had to consider it. In that case, finding him would be even more difficult. I wondered if I was looking at this the wrong way. Maybe I should be thinking of ways to make him come to me instead of trying to find him. I realized suddenly that I knew very little about him. I knew nothing of his weak spots or his pressure points. What could I do that would lure him out? What would make him peek his head up? After several minutes of hard thought, I still came up with nothing. The fucking information whore. He would never tell anybody more than they needed to know. Never give them an inch. He was smart to do that. Don't let them have anything that could be used against you. Limit their control over you. He was a player, an operator, and I was a fucking idiot. Mesa, you poor thing. I called Alice. She answered almost immediately. Call Captain for me, I said. Tell him I have a business proposition and to meet me at our spot. She started to ask why, but I cut her off and disconnected the call, not in the mood for explaining things. I needed time to make peace with this decision. As I drove, thoughts of dead wives, murdered parents, and random bombing swirled in my head. Dead shooters, highway attacks, little girls with bombs stuffed in their backpacks. Night fell, and my headlights fell upon an outdated placard. Coming soon, Alcyone Towers. Large raised letters stood out against a mock holographic display of the finished complex. Back when the towers were proposed, space had been at a premium, and overpopulation had been a growing concern. Growing outward had been impossible, so growing upward was the sole alternative. The mock-up showed three thick, massive, multi-legged structures that rose and twisted into a square antiprism. Only half of one tower had been finished before the attacks shut down construction. I parked near it, shut down the car, and debated what exactly I was doing there. I wondered if I would be able to find my spilt blood, if that dark patch still stained the soil where I'd fallen. I wondered if Captain still had spotters there. The unfinished tower was a good sniper's cove. After a few minutes of waiting, I got out of the car and sat on the hood. The air was musty and had a peculiar dusty tang to it. It tasted coppery. I waited for a bullet to punch through me, to obliterate my head. But nothing happened. Eventually, I relaxed. I listened for the sound of voices or movement. Nothing. Maybe this was a waste of time. Still, I waited, wondering if Captain would show, and if he would let me live long enough to explain why I was there. I sat for forty minutes before I spotted the yellow glow on the horizon, which resolved into headlights, then a small convoy of vehicles. My eyes lingered over the numerous half-finished tower floors, but I saw nothing. Captain was the first man out of the car. A loose regiment spread out behind him, surrounding me. His black skin took on a sheen in the headlights, and he puffed on a thick cigar. He looked me over, but I was sitting casually, not much of a threat. Thanks for coming, I said. I told you I'd put a bullet in you. I shrugged. Water under the bridge. However, a tinge of phantom pain echoed in my shortened finger. You're a man of your word, I said, trying to stay cool. It earned a smile from him, a short, stubby smile around a short, stubby cigar. 
So, what? You come for another one? He looked around at the men flanking us and at the guns they held in a relaxed but ready combat posture. Maybe a lot of them? I shook my head. I came for your help, and to give you something if you want it, if you're willing to help. His smile grew larger. He was on the verge of laughter, but my words stole away his shit-eating grin and his eyes grew serious. Jamie Kristoff, Samuel Hodgson. I know where he is. He's yours if you help me find him. He chewed on the end of his cigar for a moment, then spat it out. Slowly, he ground it out, his eyes never leaving my face. I met his gaze, staring into dark, deep pools, and I knew his answer. Chapter 15 When the Nazis launched their blitzkrieg attacks against England, bombing the country into so much rubble, Londoners sought shelter in the subways. After a night of air raids and ground-shaking explosions, they climbed up out of the rubble and started their day. They went to work and bought supplies to get themselves through another day, possibly their last. They embodied that stiff upper lip mentality everyone talked about. The bombings were an inconvenience, a minor disruption in their daily lives, but they carried on undeterred and unbowed. I would have liked to say my fellow Americans had shown backbone and conviction similar to that of their 1940s-era British counterparts, but I couldn't. As a culture, we were breastfed a sense of entitlement well past any bounds of propriety. The old American dream about working hard and people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps to become a success was vilified. Anyone who was smart, worked hard, and made lots of money was the enemy. The American dream was replaced with the American mentality, which said everyone should be able to have whatever they want and it should just be given to them. And if it wasn't given to them, they were encouraged to take it. No accountability. No work ethic. No sense of responsibility. We were weaned on instant access to information. Nothing was worth waiting for, because waiting for anything was too inconvenient. Attention spans were nil, yet, perversely, we were raised by celebrity whore wannabes who demanded constant attention, as if they were starved for it. When the war came, we wanted instant results. When our insatiable demands were not met immediately, we cowered underground to escape the bombs, cried, and whined. Nobody got up and went to work the next day. All the PRC had to do was turn out the lights and we were ready to call it quits. There were no stiff upper lips down there, deep below the city in the underground tunnels, only bent backs and broken spirits. Jamie may have been the one man on his crowded platform to stand with squared shoulders. I could almost see it, him standing still with pride among nearly 3,000 people, as if he were a breaker wall standing against the tide. He was fueled by hate and scorn, and he would have called it American pride, even though the America he believed in was nearing its expiration date, if it hadn't already passed. The underground shelters hadn't been perfect. Although the subway lines had been constructed to withstand earthquakes up to 7.5 magnitudes, bombs sometimes made it through. Occasionally, intense bombing caused streets to collapse into the tunnels, killing those inside. They penetrated the roads and the tunnels, taking out the water and sewer lines, which flooded the tunnels. While many died from the explosives and concussive shockwaves, a surprisingly high number of people drowned. Being trampled was a fairly common way to die then, too. In one instance, a pack mentality had taken over following a close call at the Hollywood and Vine stop. A group of people seeking shelter rushed down the stairs so quickly that a few missed the steps and toppled down. The crowd pushed on, tripping over one another. 
almost 200 people were crushed to death. Nearly 10,000 bunk beds filled the stops along the red and purple lines. The National Guard and Red Cross worked to keep the air raid shelters supplied with first aid kits and portable toilets. Several guardsmen were appointed as shelter marshals in an effort to keep order among the ever-growing crowds to assist with evacuations and give first aid. For a lot of people, any hope they still had after the first hard day was usually gone by the second. The shelters simply became a refuge for those who were prepared to die but were unwilling to sit outside, waiting for the big one to get dropped on them. Hope was hard to maintain. We hacked into pirated news feeds over the comnet for updated death tallies and watched analysts talk about how the subways were nothing more than death tubes because the infrastructure wasn't designed to support the shelters and withstand the attacks. The broadcasts were an unrelenting loop of horrifying images and despair run in depressing repetition. The journalists promised us that their hearts went out to us, but really they were waiting for us to die. They were hoping for the body counts to increase so they could start the news off with a fresh tally and a tired examination of death. If it bled, it led, 24 hours a day and with a ticker running over the commercial breaks. I promise, we bled. We fucking bled. Those news feeds probably saved our lives. Mesa and I had avoided the shelters, seeking escape in the countryside, away from the densely populated urban areas. Bombing trees and scrub didn't make much tactical sense or provide any advantages when, a few clicks over, a lovely shopping mall filled with people was waiting to be obliterated. Or at least we had thought so at the time. I slowly descended the steps at Civic Center, down into the darkness, with Captain and a few of his men to either side of me. A fence had been dropped to prevent admission years ago, but it had become rusty with age and hooligans had since made the stairwell easily accessible. My footsteps against the concrete echoed softly. The motionless escalators on either side of me were nothing more than an inky black mark. The subway held no semblance of life, but it had the sour stench of the unwashed, of sweat and urine and rotting excrement. It stank of death. At the platform, I spotted in the ceiling above a fiberglass man in flight, the remnants of an art installation called I Dreamed I Could Fly. Six fiberglass people had been suspended there before the war. The flyers were broken and strewn across the ground, their once colorful bodies ashen among the ruins of broken beds, busted toilets, and moth-eaten mattresses. The liquid displays were shattered, the support columns dashed, but still standing. The blast had obliterated some of the letters on the overhead directions so that it read 2-N-R-T-O-L-L-Y-W-D. The tracks on either side of the platform were empty, save for chunks of rubble. In the center of the station, between two concrete columns, was a grouping of bunk beds with bare frames. With the subway's circulation system dead, the air was stale and warm. I lowered myself onto the tracks, unworried about the third rail. Electricity hadn't flowed down there in a long time. The tunnel was a large, gaping maw, pitch black before me. I shined a light down one end, then the other. I could follow the lines to Union Station or Pershing Square, hoping to find Jamie somewhere along the way, stopping to investigate the nooks and crannies that passed the beam of my flashlight. Which way? Captain asked. I appreciated that he considered me a part of the search, even though he could have easily ignored me. His trust was a very tentative step forward, and I wasn't going to goad him back toward his usually brusque attitude. I went with Pershing Square toward North Hollywood for no real reason. A hunch was all I had to go on. 
The park there had fountains, a purple bell tower, an ice rink, and a concert square. Husbands had gone there with their wives to sit in one of the plazas and watch kids play in the streams of water while listening to the sounds of summer music. Celine and I had gone there with Mesa, and perhaps Jamie had gone there with his wife. Kafton and I set off down the tracks with a third man. He sent a second team of three down the opposite tunnel. Spotters were stationed on the rooftops across the way, taking advantage of the few snipers' peaks outside, in the hopes that they could spot Jamie coming or going. We would all be staying in touch through a private IP over the comnet. Guess we're too early to ride pantsless, huh? Captain said. His humor surprised me, and I laughed a bit. I remembered the annual bottomless subway ride commuters held every January. Back when the red line was running, hundreds of people from the punks and goths, young men and women and exhibitionistic thrill-seekers, to the businessmen wearing dress shirts, ties, sport coats, and tidy whities had taken to the subway in their underwear. Even some of the zanier elderly had gotten in on the act. I remembered sitting across from a man who had to be in his nineties and was wearing a stained undershirt and an adult diaper. The tradition was one more thing lost to the war, I realized, and my smile died. The PRC would have considered such a display an indecent form of protest and rounded up the revelers with guns drawn while lobbing tear gas into the crowds. My laughter gave way to the nerves I had been trying to disguise. Pre-fight jitters. I could feel the acid in my stomach churn, creeping up my throat. A hot ball of lead in my core struggled to climb up and I fought it back down. Fucking nerves. My head was swimming. I was afraid. Afraid I was right. Afraid it was wrong, afraid of all the potential horrible paths we were treading, afraid of what we would find at the end of the line. Captain and I had come to an amicable arrangement. We both had something the other wanted. He wanted Jamie, I needed an army, support, help. What do you want with him? Captain had asked me earlier, as the jeeps we had been riding in pulled into camp. Although no fires or lanterns burned, I could make out the downcast eyes of those who lived there people who were as much survivors as victims. A stab of pity for them echoed through me, as it had the last time I was there, and I couldn't help but wonder if I found Mesa alive, was this what I would be condemning her to? Shame crept through me at that thought, but I was getting uncomfortably used to that feeling. He has my daughter, I said. Captain stared at me for a long, quiet moment. I didn't know if he was a family man or if he had anyone at all in his life whom he cared for, other than the small regiment of soldiers he commanded, but I sensed a familiarity pass between us. A newfound interest glittered in his eyes. Before, he had regarded me with bored disinterest, as if I were a lesser man for having his gaze fall upon me. A small measure of fragile equality, not quite a bond, but perhaps some association akin to it, existed between us, but I knew that the ground could shift away from me any moment. You understand that if we find him, I'll kill him. I understand, I said. A part of me, the part of me that was beholden to Alice Shear, had been counting on it. Despite all the things I knew about Jamie, I still regarded him as a friend. For all the atrocities he had committed, all the sins he had trespassed, the more I learned about him, the more my closeness to him became shaded by anger and disgust but I did still care for him, and when the time came to put a bullet in his head, I would be unsure. I would not be able to approach the task with the impartiality of my previous murders. Captain was my ace in the hole. You're not really army, are you? I asked. He shook loose a smoke and offered me one. It was tempting, but I said no. We're private, he said, confirming what Alice had told me earlier. 
We sat around a long table, kitty corner from one another at the head, leaving a lot of open space around us. Corporate, I said. America's gone, pretty much, and what's left ain't what it used to be. The world's moved on, and everyone's starting to recognize that in order to get on with tomorrow, we have to face today. That's the PRC, the big old elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. But behind closed doors, in far-off places, people are talking and scheming. California's big business, regardless of which flag it's flying. He was talking about oil and land, lots of prime real estate that could be bought and sold for development. In 10 or 15 years, he said, you'll be seeing all these little post-nostalgia places, Chinese fryer joints with retro-cool movie themes and pictures and placards of Hollywood stars that nobody remembers or has even heard of. You'll start seeing little Asian men impersonating Arnold Schwarzenegger with little Asian Marilyn Monroes dangling off their arms. PRC, USA, it don't matter. What matters is money. The new regime wasn't expecting the uphill climb to be as steep as it is now, but that's because they're politicians and not businessmen. Now the real businessmen are stepping up. Pretty soon, this'll all be familiar again. Especially after the displaced are flown out to Montreal and forgotten about, I said. He blew out a big cloud of smoke and shrugged, unconcerned. If they want to, they'll be let back in, if they've got the funds for it. I wouldn't worry too much about it. This is still California, and the PRC is surrounded by North America over here, not Asia. They've done about all they're going to, prove what they needed to. They're holding a solid hand now, so? His voice trailed and gave way to another shrug. This camp, though. You're shuttling refugees out. The ones that want to go, the want jobs. The UN's not cutting it, so the Brits are helping out. They feel bad about how it all went down over here, and they've loosened up on their immigration policies. Ireland, too. So I figure these businessmen you're working for, they must not like Jamie too well, him blowing up everything and calling for revolution. He smiled. Maybe I was wrong about you. You're not so stupid, maybe. Yeah, Jamie's a problem for them. Nobody wants to come in and spend a few billion rebuilding and then have it all explode in their faces. How did you know who he is? I mean, who he really is? Military ain't the only thing that's private. And Alice she ain't the only one with a batch of memorialists. You've seen her outfit on that, right? Now imagine if you've got real money backing it up, lots of it. He let that sink in for a bit, then said, It's how we found you, you know. A convergence web. Right in one, he said. You're a minor data point when all is said and done, but you've shown up in enough important places with enough of the key players here to be a significant piece. So why go around killing all these people to get to him, to me? I wanted to be angry about it, to feel some kind of justified indignation, but I was too used up to feel anything. I didn't have the energy for moral outrage. We're an army, son. That's what we do. Plus, it makes for good cover. PRC sees all these attacks and thinks there's infighting among all the disparate groups they haven't managed to snuff out. My group? We're working behind the scenes a bit. Think of it as urban camouflage. When you attacked the reclamation site, I was your target, wasn't I? Yes, he said. All those people you killed. I thought of Hafiz's face exploding against me from a high-velocity sniper's round. We had to make it look good. If one person disappears, PRC would get suspicious. Jamie might have gotten spooked and rabbited. 
We go in guns a-blazing, round up you with a few other civvies, and leave a high enough body count? Well, that's just another day in the DMZ, isn't it? Bile rose as I listened to his justifications, but getting angry wouldn't do me any good. I thought about all the collateral damage his so-called urban camouflage had wrought, then reminded myself I wasn't here to argue morality with him. Fuck it. He must have reached the same conclusion. He stubbed the cigarette out on the table and stood to stretch with a loud grunt. Then we got down to business. A better part of the night was spent studying the subway lines, gathering as much information as we could. Infrastructure records weren't quite as publicly accessible as they'd been in the old days, and the PRC was slow at restoring information records. They knew that information was power, and that was something no one gave freely or readily. It took a lot of archival digging to come up with very little. The EMP attacks had decimated the public record, wiped out all those little ones and zeros we'd all become so goddamn reliant on. In the end, we came up with about as much as we already knew. Captain had maps, a lot of them, schematics, blueprints, building plans. I was surprised, awed, really. He was sitting on a powder keg of knowledge. The metro subway system covered more than 50 miles of rail below ground. The red line had been built in phases, and we were traveling through the first phase, a five-station corridor that ran from Union Station to Westlake MacArthur Park. The tunnel was roughly four miles long, with Pershing Square almost at the halfway mark. We were a bit closer, though, since Civic Center was the second stop. It should have been easy. A 75-foot-long subway car took up most of the tunnel. I recognized the Ansaldebreda A650 from Captain's Notes. The six-car train, all electric, had gone into service back in the 1990s. Ten feet wide, twelve feet tall, it sat on the rail tracks like a metal behemoth. I spotted the signature block-style M inside a red circle on the face of the car. We had to pick a side to go around it. The tunnel itself had an 18-foot diameter, and we were able to move beside the train easily enough. But we had little room for maneuvering, and we had to walk single file, which was not good when the bullets started flying. The first shot pinged off the concrete wall beside Captain's head, showering both of us with bits of stone. He dropped to his knees and I followed suit. We pressed up to the metal side of the Enceldebreda, trying to make ourselves into smaller targets. We've got a collapse on this line! The voice of one of the men who had been sent down the purple line came across the comms. His voice was tinny inside my skull, but the biofi reception was clear, despite the thick concrete and the distance between us. He started to say more, but the sounds of gunfire and a sharp scream of pain interrupted him. I lost his signal, and from the looks of the men around me, they were equally troubled by the vacant PIP broadcast. We were being ambushed. Hot sparks splashed across my face, and I could feel the heat of a bullet that had narrowly missed me. Turn off the goddamn light, Captain shouted, his voice booming across the feed in my head. I responded to his barked order on pure instinct and the urgent weight of command. I was blind in the sudden dark, and I hoped that whoever was shooting at us was too. That small sliver of hope was futile. Whoever was down there probably had night vision or optical upgrades. I can't see a fucking thing, I said, straining to see down the tunnel past Captain's shoulder. He and the other man, Anderson, both had optics and could see fine. Nanos embedded in their optic nerves would be processing the data and filtering it for thermal vision, then transmitting the information for display directly in front of their retinas. The imagery would be an odd dual overlay of their vision as it normally would be, with a computer-enhanced imagery mapped against it with as much clarity and color as could be filtered in through the software. 
From what I'd heard, it took some getting used to, and it had taken a few software upgrades for the mapping to catch up with the real-time vision processing. Just stay close, Anderson said. I could feel him shuffling close to me, but his voice was oddly disconnected through the comm relay, as if he were farther away. Get the door open, Captain said, firing a short three-round burst toward our attackers. Beta, what's your status? One tango down, Alvarez and Layden are KIA, Mitchell said. That meant he was the sole survivor of Beta Team. Son of a bitch, Anderson said. This time, his breath was hot against my ear, close enough to ruffle my hair. I've got maybe half a dozen out here, the voice said. Periodic gunfire underscored his message, echoed in front of me as Captain fired again. Sit rep? It's shit, Captain said. I needed a minute to remember sit rep was shorthand for situation report. Hard to say how many are out there, thinking six maybe. We're all healthy, though. I'm locked down in a small maintenance cubby. I don't think I'm making it out of here, Sarge. You stole that shit, Mitchell. You hold your ground, and you don't give one fucking inch. You understand that? We'll wrap this up right quick, and then we'll come and save your sorry ass. You hear me? A moment of silence ticked by. Then another, and another still. The comnet was dead. Painfully dead. Captain let out another three-round burst. His voice practically boomed through the comm. I said, do you hear me, goddammit? Silence. Another group of bullets pinged dangerously close, a spattering of concrete, a shower of sparks, the heat of metal. I found myself inching back, butting up against Anderson, who was fighting with the door, trying to pull them apart. I wedged my fingers into the door, one hand above his, the other below, and we fought to pull. The work was difficult from a crouched position below the doors, but if we stood up, we were dead. We didn't have the leverage. I wondered if the Enceldebreda's doors were locked. We would never get them open. We were going to die in this fucking tunnel. We were maybe halfway between the emergency cross passages that ran between the red and purple lines every 800 feet. Little cubbies like the one Mitchell had been holed up in were scattered along the line too, for maintenance or utilities access. What about the troops outside? I asked, thinking of the rooftop snipers Captain had positioned outside the station entrance. No. Captain said. So quickly, I figured the word was a reflex action for him. If Jamie bolts, those snipers could be our last chance to bag him up. He runs, and I pull those men down here, he gets away, and maybe I lose a few more men. Not going to happen. I'm sending a peaceful their way, Anderson said. A peaceful was, in the parlance of the military's ironic naming scheme, a sonic grenade. It did not detonate in the typical sense that most grenades do. After a short warm-up period, it would unleash a nauseating sonic wave in a small radius to cripple those it landed near. Do it, Captain urged. Everett, you cover your eyes. My eyes were adjusting to the darkness well enough to see Anderson wind up and throw. The grenade landed with a soft thud a few yards down from us. A surprised shout followed. I shut my eyes tight, but I still saw the bright flash of light and heard the soft whump and the high-pitched screech of the sonic field. The peaceful grenade had been a popular mainstay among crowd control and riot police. When it went off, anyone caught in a sonic blast was shut down instantly with uncontrollable vomiting and migraines. Although it was meant to be a more measured, more rational response than simply opening fire on a crowd of people with a hail of bullets, the effects were so severe that some people claimed that being shot was far less debilitating. We still met some gunfire, but it seemed to have diminished. The muffled retching of at least two people confirmed this. They would be the two we would try to wring some answers from if we didn't find Jamie. 
We had no way of knowing who might be wired for Dreamer or if any of them had mem backups, so the plan was to play it as safely as possible. If we met resistance, and obviously we had, we needed some of them alive. Kafton returned fire, keeping the tango pinned down. Anderson and I took the chance and stood, working together to pry open the train car's doors. With both of us on our feet and getting proper leverage, we forced open the doors and I climbed in. Bullets chased after me, pinging off the sides of the train where I had been standing. Anderson grunted and fell back a step, almost losing his balance. I knew he'd been hit, but I couldn't see how badly or where. Reinforcements are here, I shouted, this time vocally. It was stupid, but it was a frightened reflex. I wasn't used to the long, sustained conversations over Comnet. Kafton made his annoyance clear and shoved me back with one hand while helping Anderson aboard with the other. How bad? Kafton asked, firing at the opposite end of the tunnel, where the reinforcements were filtering in. Not very, Anderson said. It's healing already. I watched him as he checked his loadouts and put a fresh magazine in his assault rifle. The stupid jingle from those old Medicine Man adverts danced in my head. Anderson didn't seem all the worse for wear, and that was certainly a good thing. Captain knelt beside me, ejecting a magazine and replacing it with a full one. If he gave a damn about being seriously outnumbered, he wasn't showing it. I had my gun in hand. I checked to make sure a round was chambered and that the magazine was full. The spare magazines in my coat pocket were a reassuring weight. Lob some frags downwind, Captain said. No more peaceful bullshit. Bullets shattered the window at the rear of the cab, coating us in small shards of glass. The munitions went high and we were low. We had little in the way of shelter other than the walls surrounding us. The seating was club style, so the benches lining each side of the cab faced each other across the aisle. Nothing to hide behind or use as cover. We were less exposed than we had been outside, but it was a fairly even trade-off on which was worse. Anderson remained crouched low to the floor as he went toward the back of the cab to lob good old-fashioned grenades toward the new clump of bad guys waiting outside to kill us. He peeked out over the edge, trying to get a head count in the darkness, then ducked back inside quickly, just before the explosions. I counted five, he said. Captain nodded. Mitchell took out a few, maybe. That's good. I remembered Mitchell saying he thought there were half a dozen. I was dubious as to how well his efforts had paid off, but Captain was struggling to keep our morale up. I didn't think we would make it out alive. Three against six, maybe more? It seemed too overwhelming. Then again, I was nearly as blind as a bat. Captain and Anderson could at least see what was happening, thanks to their optics. Still, it all reminded me a bit of the Alamo, not exactly how I wanted to go out. In gun battles, time slows down. Sometimes reflexes go superhuman, or people become subconsciously aware of elements around them, subtle changes in the air, noises that would have normally gone unheard, and small rhythms pulsing in the world that they would otherwise never be cognizant of. Reflexes take over and drive that person forward, forcing him to do things he wasn't even aware needed doing. Evolution spent millions of years honing the mind and body's instinct for survival, and sometimes it does what it wants. I had no conscious reason for it, but already crouched, I dropped to one knee and spun 90 degrees to face the door I'd come through. In one fluid move, my arm raised the gun of its own accord and snapped onto an emerging face. Before I even recognized him as an enemy, I pulled the trigger. Once, twice. In the muzzle flashes, I saw the bullets hit him, tearing apart his lower jaw, then his left eye as he turned to face me. Then he fell back and out of sight.
Kafton and Anderson stared at me, but neither said anything. Kafton clapped me on the shoulder once, and I could make out the sureness of his approval. Time caught up in fast forward, bringing more bullets with it. We dropped to our bellies as the bullets got closer. I pictured a team of military shock troopers marching down the tunnel, fanned out across the rails, firing their rifles in a continuous, unyielding spread straight out of some old hollow vid. I didn't know how close to reality that was, but they were certainly moving closer and trying hard to keep us quelled, making us an easier kill. From his prone position, Anderson lobbed a few more grenades out the window, letting them land uncomfortably close to the train car. I sat facing the door, watching the side windows, looking for signs of the approaching enemy. Kafton was across from me and over a bit, his head swiveling back and forth, waiting for the doors opposite us to be forced open and for bodies to appear. Both of us scanned back and forth, over to Anderson, then back to the gaping hole that we expected soldiers to climb through any minute. In a moment of surreal calm, Anderson risked a quick peek over the ledge, found a target, and fired. I wondered if his grenades had taken any of them out and how many were left. Outside the door, close to me, something shuffled quickly. Then an object landed lightly against the rubber floor and rolled. It touched my shoes, and I kicked at it, sending it spinning away from me, where it smacked into the door frame. The grenade rolled outside, but the force of the confined explosion lifted the car and deformed the doorway. I had a moment of weightlessness, and my stomach lurched as though I were in a fast-moving elevator. Then the car resettled, half off the track. The floor was canted, and I had to brace my feet ahead and beneath me to keep from sliding. I fired at the wall, hoping the bullets would pierce the metal siding. Maybe I would get lucky and kill a fucker out there. The person had hurried down, though, to the next car ahead of us. They were forcing the door open, piling in quickly. Anderson glanced up over the ledge again. That's it, he nodded toward the front of the car. Those are the last two, then. Captain marched forward, his gun extended, and fired at the small windows in the door separating our two cars. They were not shy about firing back and did so liberally. Kafton went back into a crouch but had nowhere to hide. Kneeling on the hard, rubberized floor, Anderson and I shot over him. We were all shooting in a chaotic exchange of gunfire, making it impossible to tell who got whom. But in quick succession, one tango went down, followed by Kafton and Anderson and the second tango, almost simultaneously. I didn't even know I'd been hit until I tried to stand and felt a sharp jolt of pain in my leg. The bullet had grazed me. Nothing serious, but still messy. Anderson was closest, so I checked him first. My fingers went to his neck to find a pulse, but I found a thick, slippery sheen instead. He was gone. The wound was too large, and the blood was pumping out of him too quickly for the medicines to do him any good. Kafton was in better shape, but unable to stand. He'd been hit in the leg full on and in the upper chest near his shoulder. Just need a minute or two, he said, to collect myself. Let the nanos do their job. He was going to need more than a minute or two, but I didn't bother correcting him. The medicines would be breaking down the bullets into tiny little atoms, mapping the wound's channels, and working to figure out the best ways to stitch him back up and save his life. They would do a quick triage for his vitals, but it would be a few days before he was 100% again. We had to get moving, but I didn't think giving him the minute he'd asked for would be too detrimental. I was surprised we'd lived that long. Over their chests, both Anderson and Kafton wore nylon webbing, which held pouches filled with field emergency medical supplies and spare magazines. I popped open the medic pouch and dug out gauze and a packet of quick clot. I doused his wounds with the powder and wrapped his leg tight enough to staunch the bleeding, then did the same for his shoulder. 
Wait here, I said. Stay off the leg. I didn't wait for a response. I was on my feet and out the door quickly. I thumbed the flashlight on, holding it and the gun out in front of me. If we still had hostels out there, I was as much of a target with a light as I was without. Being crammed between the walls of the subway car and the station tube, I was as good as dead if anyone was out there. The lamp's normally wide arc was stunted by my surroundings. Once I had edged my way to the front of the train, my field of view opened. My light fell on a dead man with bullet holes in his face. The darkness carried a soft whimper down to me. Then, closer, a wet smack hit the concrete as somebody threw up. I turned quickly, splashing my light over him, and saw the gun in his lap, his arm limp and still. He was sitting on the ground, his torso twisted to the right so he could spit up. He was in no shape to use the gun, and I took it without resistance. He glared at me lamely. Chunks of his partially digested supper were spit-glued to his lower lip and chin, and the vomit was a bib against his shirt. A bit farther down the line, his partner retched again. Come on, stand up, I said. He refused with a weak shake of his head, and I had to haul him to his feet. When I grabbed his arm, his shirt was sodden with sweat, and a feverish heat wafted off his body. I pushed him toward his ill friend, and after a few steps he fell back to the ground, dazed and tired. Neither man was chipped, so a direct download of their memory cores was impossible. We'd planned on that contingency. We had our two prisoners, but we needed an answer from one of them. I explained this to them slowly so they could absorb my words through the sickness the Peacefuls had left behind. I shined my light on one. His pale skin looked slick, and the harsh beam of light did him no favors. His body seized, his head twisting to the side to eject a long stream of vomit. The side of his body lifted under the violence, and he passed gas. When he resettled, his body slid on the seat of his pants, and he made a loud, squishy sound. Then the smell hit me. My stomach lurched, and I kept myself from puking. The other tango wasn't so lucky, however, and he threw up in his lap. I looked down on the grown men. Their skin was shiny with sweat and yellowed by sickness. Covered in puke and stinking of shit, they wallowed in their own excrement. The military's approach to peaceful measures of suppressing enemy forces was steeped heavily in irony. Law enforcement and military were always caught in a quandary when it came to protecting and defending. The politicians thumped their chests and whined about how badly the civil rights of terrorists in the Middle East were violated when the U.S. military killed them. Then they complained that mere detainment violated prisoners' rights. To appease the politicians and the ACLU, the military devised the peaceful sonic grenades and were then berated for violating the basic premises of human dignity and using measures akin to torture. There was certainly nothing dignified about Jamie's men and their current state, but I had no sympathy for them. A few minutes ago, they'd been trying to kill me. One of you is going to tell me where Jamie Kristoff is. Neither man did. I asked again. Silence. I know you guys are feeling shitty. Now you can answer me, or I can make you feel worse. They gave me some slight attention, then stared at the ground, at the vomit around them or in their laps. Neither of them traded glances with the other, and neither of them would look me in the eye. Better or worse, I said. I'm running out of patience. Silence. Okay. I raised my gun and fired two rounds into the man on the right. The shots echoed in the chamber. He sat there with his mouth open, his brains a smear on the wall behind him. 
I waited for the man on the left to finish evacuating himself, then gave him my full attention. How much worse do you want to make things for yourself? I asked him. Because now I can go real slow on you. Drag it out, and you don't seem to be feeling up for it too much. Am I right? A thick rope of saliva dangled from his filthy lower lip. The sockets of his eyes were dark pools against his pale skin. Flecks of red in his cheeks, around the bridge of his nose, and around his eyes told me he'd been vomiting so hard that he'd burst blood vessels in his face. A hatch, maybe a few hundred feet ahead. He stopped to cough up a thick wad of phlegm. The goo dislodged itself from deep inside his chest with a noise of ice cracking. Some stairs, you'll find him there, he said, spit hanging from his chin. Killing him would be easy. A bullet to his sweaty head, no resistance, no fight in him at all. I left him and went back to the subway car where I had left Captain. The cracks and ribs of the thick rubber floor inside were filled with blood, and the harshness of the light I carried showed the battle damage in stark contrast. The doorframe was warped and blackened, and the car creaked and wobbled slightly under my weight as I hauled myself back up. Captain was pale, but his mood was still strong. He got his good leg and good arm under him and pushed up while I helped lift. He was strong, his grip good and sure. The medicines must have been putting in overtime. Learn anything? he asked. I told Captain about my conversation with the one I'd left and that we could come back for him if we found out he was lying. So, let's go then, he shoved past me to gingerly lower himself to the tracks. Even with both feet on the ground, he was unsteady and moved slowly, limping forward. I stayed behind him, throwing the light toward the rear every few paces and checking to make sure our six was clear. We followed the sound of coughing, which was more violent hacking than anything else, and Captain paid the wretched man a cursory glance before trudging past. I checked a few times to make sure he was staying still as we moved farther down the tunnel until my beam of light could no longer find him in the darkness. After about 400 feet, we came to a tunnel that bridged the red and purple lines and was used in case of evacuations to connect the stations. We stopped before a steel door with an ancient, rusty sign that said, Maintenance. I reached for the handle, but Captain grabbed my wrist surprisingly quickly. We gotta check it first, he said. Make sure it's not rigged to blow. I had seen enough vids to know that the handle on the other side could have a tripwire looped around it. If we opened the door, the wire would come with it, yanking out the pin of a grenade that would take off our heads. I shined the light around the doorframe, finding mostly rust. With a nod from Captain, I gripped the handle and slowly parted the door until he waved for me to stop. The door was open less than an inch, and if a wire were on the other side, the line was still slack, and we were still breathing. He took my light and shined it inside. Then he snaked a few fingers into the crack, feeling around the exposed edge of the frame. Slowly, he opened the door farther and reached inside. The door opened under its own weight, and I realized that Captain had let it. Then I realized I had been holding my breath and let it out. He shined the light across the floor on the other side of the threshold, then along the walls and ceiling. The doorway led into a slightly larger tunnel that went forward maybe three feet to a stairway that led up. An electrical utility box was just inside the door, but nothing else. Come on, Captain nodded me forward. Going up the stairs would be slow and tricky for him. Batter up. My path of light blazed a graffiti-ridden trail up the metal steps. Dead bulbs were trapped in rusty cages where the ribs of metal were filled with cobwebs and grime. 
Our footsteps echoed in the cavern as we made our way up, and the darkness surrounding our small cone of illumination and Kaftan's awkward pace, thud, pause, thud, pause, up the steps behind me made me claustrophobic. We climbed the stairs through a square opening and into an attic. We were still fifty or sixty feet below ground, but the room was expansive and easily spanned the width between the two tunnels. The ceiling was far above us. At the sides, ladders led off to ventilation shafts. Rows and rows of old electronics were stacked in heaps that looked like shoddy pyramids built of ancient computer towers and bulky CRT monitors, relics that I'd seen in computer history books and old magazines archived in cloud storage. Office desks and chairs cluttered the space, too. Wrinkled, yellowed calendars curled away from their desktop blotters. A few other calendars were still in their plastic shrink wrap, and those, as with everything else, were covered in a thick, gray-brown coat of dust. I shined my light between the aisles of computer equipment, then Captain nudged me and pointed downward. In the dust were the perfect impressions of shoe prints. The confusing trails of steps and shuffles, some overlapping one another and others so clear I could count the treads, almost resembled an old dance pattern. Although the prints were muddled, they all came from the same direction, and we followed the trail back, through a long row of manila-colored filing cabinets, steel-gray shelving units, and scarred wooden desks. At the end, we found a heap of sleeping bags and an old barrel with a still-fresh fire burning inside. A man sat beside it, in a battered swivel chair, warming his hands over the flame. He made no movements for the gun that sat in his lap. Captain had him dead to rights, his gun sights lined up squarely, even though it would have been a point-blank kill. Hey there, Jonah, he said. Hi there, Jamie. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serialaudio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.